We say welcome to you online as well. We're so glad you're here. Um, and if you're here for the first time, you're kind of coming in on the end of a conversation. We started this series um, back in July, The Power of If, and we're working through Romans chapter 8. The first week we talked about, well, and real quick, um, we're finishing up the series this week. Next week we're going to start a new series called Washed, Washed, um, excuse me. And um, so be here. That's going to be, I think, four weeks um, we'll see when we get into it, um, three or four weeks, but um, join us for that. But when we started the series, The Power of If, we began with a um, really the if question that really starts all of us, the if-only regrets. What are the if-only regrets in your life? The things that you wish you could go back and change, the things you wish you could go back and do differently, because every single one of us has those if-only moments. The next week was as if, that we would live our life as if it is true that, that God who raised Jesus from the dead lives within us and gives us power. Last week we talked about the darkness that is passing away, and yet even though it seems like this world that we are in is decaying and dying, which it is, there is this new life that is being born in the midst of the ugliness and the decay, and the brokenness. And, and the entire series really is hinged on a verse really that we're getting to today. But it's this idea that God is for you. That from the very beginning, God has been pursuing you, God loves you, and He is passionate about you. And, and what I've found in my time in ministry more and more often than not, is intellectually, I think we all understand that. But there is a level deep, deep within us, deep in our heart, that I think at times struggles to grasp that. To, to really, truly believe that God is for you. And the reason that is so important, because what you believe and what you think about God shapes the way that you live your life. What you believe and what you think about God changes the way that you react when your kids are out of line. It changes the way when you disagree with your spouse. It changes the way that you handle really difficult and delicate situations. Because what we believe about God shapes who we are as the people of God. And so this week, we're going to kind of jump back in here that we've been leading towards this whole time. Because in the first part of the book, Paul is really kind of laying out his theology, that, that we are sinful people, that we are broken, but that Christ is redeeming and restoring and renewing all things. And so he comes to this as, as he really kind of moves into his closing section here in Romans 8. He says, what then shall we say to these things? These things being kind of the theology that he's laid out through the first um, seven plus chapters of Romans. If God is for us, then who can be against us? If God is for us, if God is for you, then who can be against you? And this week, I'm going to kind of deal with this last if. What if? What if that is true? What if God is for you? then how does it change your life? 
How does it change tomorrow? How does it change next week? How does it change what you do right now in this moment? How does it change? How does it transform the big decisions that you're wrestling with? How does it change your marriage? How does it change the way that you parent? How does it change the way that you are a boss or an employee? How does it change the way that you are a neighbor? What if? What if God is for you? What if God is for you and there is no one that can stand against you? And here in this section of chapter 8, Paul goes through this series of questions. And he really sets things up like a trial. Like this, this jury trial. And it's really kind of moving towards this grand crescendo. Where, where everything is working together and everything is moving. And he begins this section with this series of questions. Where he just starts asking questions. And what I love about questions is questions help you come to the answer on your own. I think it's one of those powerful teaching tools there is. Um, so I get to the, the privilege and honor of coaching my kids. Um, there's a few of you here who have seen me coach my kids, and um, I've sworn you to secrecy. Um, but this is a picture of, of Caleb and I um, this past spring at the start of the, the season. And, and this was after the game was over. And, and Caleb had done, I don't, at this point, I don't even remember what it was. I was furious when he did it. Um, and, and, but I was Christ-like in my response. Um, I, was, I, I was talking to him, and I, and I just said, Caleb, what were you thinking? What, what were you doing? And of course, he's nine, okay? And, and so what, what was really fascinating, though, is his answer was like, Okay, no, that's, that's really good. That's what, what you should... Because that's like one of my favorite questions to ask kids when I'm coaching. Like, I just stop practice at times, and I'll just point at kids like, why did you just do that? And what's so funny is most of the time they freak out. They're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm sorry, coach. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm not worried about what you did. I, I want to know what you were thinking and why you did that. I, I want to hear their, their reasoning. Because I want them to start thinking about the game and how it should be played and what they should do in certain situations. Because I think those questions and what you learn in those times are so much more powerful when you arrive at the answer on your own. And so I think what Paul is doing here is he's using this teaching tool of asking questions. And he's hoping, I don't think this is one of those things you just rush through as he's asking question after question after question. I think there's this kind of pause between each of them. He, he asks these questions wanting you to sit there and kind of ponder for a second. How do you answer? Because so many times when we come together and we read the text, we, we rush through it. And we don't worry about this little thing um, called punctuation. Right? I mean, I don't use punctuation when I write most of the time. And so I have proofreaders, Brenda Craig, who fixes it and makes fun of me for not, but um, the punctuation is so important, All right? So this trial, this almost trial, where he's putting us, himself, on trial, and he says this in Romans 8, verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave up 
gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Again, question. He asked a question. And he wants you in your mind to think through this. God who gave his son, is he not willing to give you everything? I mean, if, if God is for you, no one can, if, if God is for you, so much so that he gave his son for you, would he not graciously give you everything that you need to sustain you and to give you life? Right? It's not, not one of those questions you just rush through. Like, God gave His Son. Why would He give you everything else? Moving on. There's supposed to be a pause. And, and you're supposed to reflect. And you're supposed to think. And He goes on, verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who, who again, question. Who can bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies it is God who justifies. And this word justify is a Greek word, um, dikaio. And it just simply means to show or prove someone is right or reasonable. Like that, not, not theological um, in its meaning right there, just the basic definition. To show or prove someone to be right or reasonable. And so the way that Paul is using it is more a little, theo- little more theological. He says to declare, declare someone righteous, which right or reasonable in the sight of God. So, so what, what was the question we, we go back to? Who will bring a charge against those of God has chosen? It is God who justifies. It, it's God who declares someone to be righteous before him and and so here's the problem like theologically for us right there's no one who is righteous all of us have sinned all of us fall short of the glory of god in verse 24 of romans 3 sorry we're in chapter 3 real quick going back um verse 24 and are justified by his grace as a gift for the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So so it's God who justifies. Now here's here's the the problem. How do you declare someone righteous who is not? How do you just simply declare someone is righteous when they aren't. See, and here's the thing. For us, most of the time, we can kind of think of ourselves as righteous simply because we compare ourselves to everyone else. We, we compare ourselves to everyone else, and so obviously we are better off than they are. But that's not the the point here. The, the point is not in comparison to everyone else, you are righteous. 
The point is, in comparison to God, you are completely unrighteous. You are completely unholy. And I don't care how long you've been following Jesus. I don't care what your role is. I don't care if you preach or you lead or you're a shepherd. You are completely unrighteous and unable to stand before a righteous God. You are completely unable to stand before a holy God. And to me, that's what makes this, this idea of self-righteousness so kind of comical. Because what we do when we are self-righteous is we typically will pick out the things we're really good at following and point to those to justify our own righteousness. Rather than to look at our life and all of the places that we mess up and all of the places that we fail to point to our complete unrighteousness. And in Philippians, is. Um, Xander, sorry, I was fixing to say Zonovan. As Xander read this morning, thank you so much, Xander. As he says in Philippians 3, Whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Verse 9, For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Not, and being found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own. Right? Not, not having a righteousness of mine. Not what I've done. Not how good I've been. But not having a righteousness of my own. I have this righteousness that is given to me by Christ. In, in verse 9 he says, But... But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, right? that I may know Him in the power of His resurrection, and I may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That I don't have this righteousness, I don't have this goodness of my own. It is a gift from God. It is given to me. I don't deserve it, but yet I have it freely. So in Romans 8, going back to, to chapter 8, verse 34. Who then, who then, another question, who then is the one who is to condemn? Who is it to condemn? Who can condemn you? And here's the, the, the honest answer. Christ. Now, now if we, we get real, real serious about it for just a second, who can condemn you? There's probably a lot of people. There's probably a lot of people in your life that you have hurt, that you've sinned against, people that you have broken the relationship down. But, but his question is who... Who can condemn you? And, and what we would think intellectually would be the answer? Well, there's, there's lots of people. He says this. Who can condemn you? Verse going back. Christ Jesus, the one who died. More than that, who was raised and is who, is, who is at the right hand of God. 
who indeed is interceding for us. The one who is standing there before God the Father, declaring us as righteous. Now here's here's the crazy thing. The very people whose sin sent him to the cross, he stands before them and says, I declare you as righteous. How is it possible to forgive like that? How is it possible for those of us who sit here completely unrighteous in the sight of God, the reason that Jesus went to the cross in the first place, and yet somehow Jesus says, no, they are righteous. They belong. And in fact, the one that we sent to the cross is the one who is pleading with God on our behalf, interceding, going before us, saying, no, they belong. They have a place in the kingdom of God. And it doesn't make sense, but only Christ has the power and the ability to do that. To to simply step in the gap for someone else and take the punishment that they deserve. When I was in fifth grade, I went to um, Kimberlin Academy in Garland, Texas. And it was a school for the gifted and talented. Um, And so what Garland does with their gifted and talented programs. It wasn't because I was smart. Just, we'll just clear. It was because I was good at art. Um, hold for applause. Yeah. No. <laughs> it, it wasn't because I was super smart. It was because I was good at art. And so what they did is like half of the school was made up of neighborhood kids. And they put their academies in really kind of rough neighborhoods. Um, to the point like where the apartment complex across the street from Kimberlin was later um, condemned and shut down because of drug trafficking. Like it, it was a, a rough, rough neighborhood. And so about half the, the kids come from a really, really rough neighborhood, and the other half are kind of bust in from all over Garland. And so I was in fifth grade, and um, I, I wanted to kind of show that I was becoming a tough man, guy, you know, um, as you do in fifth grade. And so we had lined up inside or outside the classroom and hall. We were going to lunch. And there was a girl from the neighborhood named Tamika. And she was standing right in front of me. And she was kind of a bully. And I just decided, okay, this is going to stop. All right, I'm, I'm tired of this. And so I looked at Tamika and I said, you think you're so bad? You think you're so bad? You ain't nothing. If you're thinking that sounds familiar, it's Rocky Three. But the problem was she was probably a lot more like Clubber Lang than I was like um, Rocky. And so Tamika turns around and pushes me out of nowhere. And I'll be honest, when I said that, I didn't think I was going to get any kind of response at all. By the way, my mom's probably listening online and she doesn't really know the full part of this story. So, so anyway, 
um, I, I didn't know what to do. Well, my friend Toby was standing right beside me, and Toby steps in front of her and pushes her and slings her to the ground. And I was sitting there like, oh my, I don't know what to do. And so the teacher comes out and sees this little wrestling match going. And she goes, Tamika and Toby, you're going to the office. <laughs> and I'm sitting here thinking, oh, man, that was probably not a good idea. And Toby goes, okay, let's go. And he starts walking to the office, and Tamika goes, Gary started it. <laughs> now, you have to understand, my dad was a principal in Garland ISD, and he knew every single teacher there. My mom was a teacher in that school. There was no way I was going to the principal's office and my parents not find out about it. And not only were my parents going to find out about it, whatever I got at school, I was going to get it home to. Right? So I end up going to the principal's office, and I'm kind of just sitting there quiet. And the principal says, well, what, what happened? And Tamika starts to say something. And Toby jumps in. And I don't remember completely what Toby said. But here's what I do remember. is 100% Toby took all of the blame and left me completely out of it. And never allowed her to say Gary started it. I have no idea why he did that. I have no idea because the principal told my mom later that day, well, Gary got sent to the office, but it wasn't really his fault. <laughs> Sorry, mom. <laughs> but like, here, here's the deal. Like, it was 100% my fault. I started it all. The altercation, none of that would ever happen if I hadn't opened my mouth. It was 100% my fault. And it was my buddy that stepped in the middle and took the blame. That, that's why, you know, 30 years later, I still remember that entire day. I remember the altercation. I remember going to the, the office, like, knowing, like, oh, man, I am in so much trouble. My parents are going to kill me. And Toby took the blame. Toby jumps in the middle. He, he took the consequences that I was supposed to have B because of my sin. And we, we started week one with this idea of sin, right? The Hebrew word was kata, the, the Greek word hamartia. And it just simply means to miss the goal. What, what was the goal? That you were created in the image of God. To be his priest, to represent him in the world. So that when you walked outside of this place, walked outside of your house, the world would know what God was like because of you. But so often, so often we fail to miss the mark. So, so often we fail and, and we don't live up to the image that we were called to bear. And it is Jesus that comes to this earth because we don't bear that image. Because we fail. Because we hold grudges, because we seek revenge, because we hurt those who haven't hurt us, because of the sin in our life, 
Jesus pays that price. Jesus steps in and takes on what we deserved. Let's go on to verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Another question. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Who who can separate you from Christ? Even though you're facing death all day long. No, 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 no. You are more than a conqueror. You are an overcomer is the actual word he uses. You're an overcomer because of what Christ has done. Like you're, you're in the midst of the, the death and the decay and the brokenness and the hurting and the pain. And it, it looks like it's decaying. It looks like it's breaking down. It looks like it's falling apart all around you. And yet you are the one that's going to be standing in the end. You are the one that is given life. You might have heard the story of a lady named Corey Tinboom. Her and her family were Dutch watchmakers. They lived in, um, uh, forget the name of the, the city, um, but during World War um, I with Nazi Germany, or World War II with Nazi Germany, one or two, two. Um, I probably should have written all that down. World War II. And her and her family helped hide Jewish families that were being chased by the Nazis. They were caught, they were arrested, and they were sent to Ravensbrück, a concentration camp, where her and her family lived day and night. In her book, The Hiding Place, she tells the story of her life, of how they grew up and even to the point of going to a Jewish concentration camp under the persecution of the Nazis. And the fear that they lived with, the hurting and the pain, both before entering the concentration camp and after. But it was in the concentration camp that she found Jesus and that she began a relationship with Him. And she writes this in the book, The Hiding Place. I would look about as Betsy, her sister, read, watching the light leap from face to face, more than conquerors. It was not a wish. It was a fact. We knew it. We experienced it minute by minute. Poor, hated, hungry. We are more than conquerors. Not we shall be. We are. Life in Ravensbrook took place on two separate levels. Mutually impossible, one, the observable, external life grew every day more horrible. The other, the life we live with God, grew daily better, truth upon truth, glory upon glory. To live in the midst of really the hell that they experienced on earth. 
day after day, yet somehow filled with hope. Filled with hope that what Christ was doing in this world was redeeming and renewing all things. And so Paul kind of comes to the end of his little conclusion. And this is, this is like personal experience. This is, hey, I've asked you the questions I've allowed, but I want to tell you what I think and what I believe. So he says this in verse 38. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is nothing in all of creation that can separate you from the love of God. What more must He do to show you? He gave you His Son to give life. And His Son, who you put on the cross, stands before you and says, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. I want you to count them as righteous. Not because they are, but because I am. And I am extending my righteousness to them. I am giving it to them. I am laying them down. The very one we put in that place. The very one. And and who can claim they're righteous? No one. Except for Christ. The one who is. The one who freely gives His righteousness to you. Now here's the thing. As we said when we began. I think intellectually... In our head, like, we know that. But my question is, does your heart know it? Does it believe it? Does it affect the way that you live today? Does it affect the way that you live tomorrow? Does does it affect your relationships? Does it affect your marriage? Does it affect the way that you parent Does it affect your job? Does it affect the way that you experience life in your neighborhood? Does it change anything about you? Or are they simply words on the page? What if? What if God is for you? What if the very one who deserved your punishment, just like Toby did for me, steps in the gap. He intercedes. And he says, no, I'll take the blame. I'll take the blame. Even though he deserves it, even though it's his fault, it's on me. So what if? What if God has been passionately pursuing you? What if the things in your life that you think separate you from Christ, 
the things in your past, those if-only regrets that you know have to create this gap between you and God? What if they have been forgiven? What if you have been set free from them? How does it change your life? What's different tomorrow because of what Christ has done today?